Section 36 of Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Reynolds. Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 1. Exploration of the World by Jules Verne. Second Part, Chapter 3, Part 2a Polar Expeditions From 1492 to 1524, France had stood aloof, officially at least, from enterprises of discovery and colonization. But Francis I could not look on quietly while the power of his rival, Charles V, received a large addition by the conquest of Mexico. He therefore ordered John Verrazzano, a Venetian who was in his service, to make a voyage of exploration. We will pause here for a short time. Although the various places may have already been visited on several occasions, because for the first time the banner of France floats over the shores of the New World, this exploration, besides, was to prepare the way for those of Jacques Cartier and of Champlain in Canada as well as for the unlucky experiments in colonization of Jean Ribot and of Laudonniere, the sanguinary voyages of reprisals of Gourgues and Villegagnon's attempt at a settlement in Brazil. We possess no biographical details with regard to Verzano. Under what circumstances did he enter the service of France? Was his title to the command of such an expedition? Nothing is known of the Venetian traveller for all we possess of his writings is the Italian translation of his French report to Francis I, published in the collection of Ramusio. The French translation of this Italian translation exists in an abridged form in Lescarbot's work on New France, and in the Histoire des Voyages. For our very rapid epitome, we shall make use of the Italian text of Ramusio, except in some passages where Lescarbot's translation has appeared to give an idea of the rich, original, and marvelously modulated language of the sixteenth century. Having set out with four vessels to make discoveries in the ocean, says Verzano in a letter written from Dieppe to Francis I on 8th July 1524, he was forced by a storm to take refuge in Brittany, with two of his vessels, the Dauphine and the Normand, there to repair damages. Thence he set sail for the coast of Spain, where he seems to have given chase to some Spanish vessels. We see him leave the Dauphine alone on the 17th of January, 1524, a small uninhabited island in the neighborhood of Madeira, and launch himself upon the ocean with a crew of fifty men well furnished with provisions and ammunition for an eight-months voyage. Twenty-five days later he has made fifteen hundred miles to the west, when he is assailed by a fearful storm, and twenty-five days afterwards, that is to say on the eighth or ninth of March, having made about twelve hundred miles, he discovers land at thirty degrees north latitude, which he thought had never been previously explored. When we arrived, it seemed to us to be very low, but on approaching, within a quarter of a league, we saw, by the great fires which were lighted among the harbours and borders of the sea, that it was inhabited, 
and in taking trouble to find a harbour in which to land and make acquaintance with the country, we sailed more than one hundred and fifty miles in vain, so that seeing the coast trended ever southwards, we decided to turn back again. The Frenchmen, finding a favourable landing-place, perceived a number of natives who came towards them, but who fled away when they saw them land. Soon recalled by the friendly signs and demonstrations of the French, they showed a great surprise at their clothes, their faces, and the whiteness of their skin. The natives were entirely naked, except that the middle of the body was covered with sable skins, hung from a narrow girdle of prettily woven grasses, and ornamented with tails of other animals, which fell to their knees. Some wore crowns of bird's feathers. They have brown skins, says the narrative, and are exactly like the Saracens. Their hair is black, not very long, and tied at the back of the head, in the form of a small tail. Their limbs are well proportioned. They are of middle height, although a little taller than ourselves, and have no other defect beyond their faces being rather broad. They are not strong, but they are agile, and some of the greatest and quickest runners in the world. It was impossible for Verzano to collect any details about the manners and mode of life of these people, on account of the short time that he remained among them. The shore at this place was composed of fine sand, interspersed here and there with little sandy hillocks, behind which were scattered groves and very thick forests, which were wonderfully pleasant to look upon. There were in this country, as far as we could judge, abundance of stags, fallow deer and hares, numerous lakes, and streams of sparkling water, as well as a quantity of birds. This land lies at thirty-four degrees. It is therefore the part of the United States, which now goes by the name of Carolina. The air there is pure and salubrious, the climate temperate, the sea is entirely without rocks, and, in spite of the want of harbors, it is not unfavorable for navigators. During the whole month of March, the French sailed along the coast, which seemed to them to be inhabited by a numerous population. The want of water forced them to land several times, and they perceived that the savages were most pleased with mirrors, bells, knives, and sheets of paper. One day they sent a longboat ashore with twenty-five men in it. A young sailor jumped into the water, because he could not land on account of the waves and currents in order to give some small articles to these people, and having thrown to them from a distance because he was distrustful of the natives, he was cast violently on shore by the waves. The Indians, seeing him in this condition, take him and carry him far away from the sea, to the great dismay of the poor sailor, who expected they were about to sacrifice him. Having placed him at the foot of a little hill, in the full blaze of the sun, they stripped him quite naked, and wondered at the whiteness of his skin. Then, lighting a large fire, they made him come to it, and recover his strength. And it was then that the poor young man, as well as those who were in the boat, thought that the Indians were about to massacre and immolate him, roasting his flesh in this large brazier, and then eating their victim, as do the cannibals. But it happened quite differently, for having shown a desire to return to the boat, they reconducted him to the edge of the sea, and having kissed him very lovingly, they retired to a hill to see him re-enter the boat. 
Continuing to follow the shore northwards for more than 150 miles, the Frenchmen reached a land which seemed to them more beautiful, being covered with thick woods. Into these forests twenty men penetrated for more than six miles, and only returned to the shore from the fear of losing themselves. In this walk, having met two women, one young and the other old, with some children, they seized one of the latter, who might be about eight years old, with the idea of taking him away to France, but they could not do the same with the young woman, who began to cry with all her might, calling for aid from her compatriots, who were hidden in the wood. In this place the savages were whiter than any of those hitherto met. They snared birds, and used a bow of very hard wood, and arrows tipped with fish-bones. Their canoes, twenty feet long and four feet wide, were hollowed by fire out of the trunk of a tree. Wild vines abounded and climbed over the trees in long festoons, as they do in Lombardy. With a little civilization they would no doubt produce excellent wine. For the fruit is sweet and pleasant like ours, and we thought that the natives were not insensible to it. For in all directions where these vines grew, they had taken care to cut away the branches of the surrounding trees, so that the fruit might ripen. Wild roses, lilies, violets, and all kinds of odiferous plants and flowers new to the Europeans, carpeted the ground everywhere, and filled the air with sweet perfumes. After remaining for three days in this enchanting place, the Frenchmen continued to follow the coast northwards, sailing by day and casting anchor at night. As the land trended towards the east, they went 150 miles further in that direction, and discovered an island of triangular shape, about thirty miles distant from the continent, similar in size to the island of Rhodes, and upon which they bestowed the name of the mother of Francis I, Louisa of Savoy. Then they reached another island, forty-five miles off, which possessed a magnificent harbour, and of which the inhabitants came in crowds to visit the strange vessels. Two kings especially were of fine stature and great beauty. They were dressed in deerskins, with the head bare, the hair carried back and tied in a tuft, and they wore on the neck a large chain ornamented with colored stones. This was the most remarkable nation which they had until now met with. The women are graceful, says the narrative published by Ramusio. Some wore the skins of the lynx on their arms. Their head was ornamented with their plaited hair, and long plates hung down on both sides of the chest. Others had headdresses which recalled those of the Egyptian and Syrian women. Only the elderly women, and those who were married, wore pendants in their ears of worked copper. This land is situated on the same parallel as Rome, in forty-one degrees forty minutes, but its climate is much colder. On the 5th of May, Verrazzano left this port and sailed along the seashore for four hundred and fifty miles. At last he reached a country of which the inhabitants resembled but little any of those whom he had hitherto met with. They were so wild that it was impossible to carry on any trade with them, or any sustained intercourse. What they had appeared to esteem above everything else were fish-hooks, knives, and all articles of metal, attaching no value to all the trifling baubles which up to this time had served for barter. Twenty-five armed men landed and advanced from four to six miles into the interior of the country. They were received by the natives with flights of arrows, after which the latter retired into the immense forests which appeared to cover the whole country. 
150 miles further on spreads out a vast archipelago, composed of 32 islands, all near the land, separated by narrow canals, which reminded the Venetian navigator of the archipelagos which in the Adriatic border the coasts of Scalvonia and Dalmatia. At length, 450 miles further on, in latitude 50 degrees, the French came to lands which had been previously discovered by the Bretons. Finding themselves then short of provisions, and having reconnoitred the coast of America for a distance of 2,100 miles, they returned to France, and disembarked safely at Dieppe in the month of July, 1524. Some historians relate that Verrazzano was made prisoner by the savages who inhabit the coast of Labrador, and was eaten by them, a fact which is simply impossible, since he addressed from Dieppe to Francis I the account of his voyage which we have just abridged. Besides, the Indians of these regions were not anthropophagi, certain authors, but we have not been able to discover on the authority of what documents, nor under what circumstances this happened, relate that Verrazzano, having fallen into the power of the Spaniards, had been taken to Spain, and there hanged. It is much wiser to admit that we know nothing certain about Verrazzano, and that we are totally ignorant what rewards his long voyage procured for him. Perhaps when some learned man shall have looked through our archives, of which the abstract and inventory are far from being finished, he may recover some new documents, but for the present we must confine ourselves to the narrative of Ramusio. Ten years later, a captain of Saint-Malo, named Jacques Cartier, born on the 21st of December, 1484, conceived the project of establishing a colony in the northern part of America. Being favorably received by Admiral Philippe de Chabot and by Francis I, who asked to see the clause in Adams's will which disinherited him of the New World in favor of the kings of Spain and Portugal, Cartier left Saint-Malo with two vessels on the 20th of April, 1534. The vessel which carried him weighed only sixty tons, and carried a crew of sixty-one men. At the end of only twenty days, so favorable was the voyage, Cartier discovered Newfoundland at Cape Bonavista. He then went northwards, as far as Bird Island, which he found surrounded by ice, all broken up and melting, but on which he was able nevertheless to lay in a stock of five or six tons of guillemot, puffins, and penguins, without reckoning those which were eaten fresh. He then explored all the coast of the island, which at this time bore a number of Breton names, thus proving the assiduous manner in which the French frequented these shores. Then, penetrating into the Strait of Belle Isle, which separates the continent from the island of Newfoundland, Cartier arrived at the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Along the whole of this coast the harbors are excellent. If the land only corresponded to the goodness of the harbors, says the Saint-Malo sailor, it would be a great blessing, but one ought not call it itland. It is rather pebbles and savage rocks, and places fit for wild beasts. As for all the land towards the north, I never saw as much earth there as would fill a tumbrel. After having coasted along the continent, Cartier was cast by a tempest upon the west coast of Newfoundland, where he explored Cape Royal and Cape Milk, the Columba Islands, Cape St. Jean, the Magdalen Islands, and the Bay of Miramichi, 
on the continent. In this place he had some intercourse with the savages, who showed a great and marvellous eagerness in the acquisition of iron tools and other things, always dancing and performing various ceremonies, among others throwing sea-water on their heads with their hands. So well did they receive us that they gave us all that they had, keeping back nothing. The next day the number of the savages was even greater, and our French sailors made an ample harvest of furs and skins of animals. After having explored the Bay of Chaleur, Cartier arrived at the entrance of the estuary of the St. Lawrence, where he saw some natives who possessed neither the appearance nor the language of the first. The latter may truly be called savages, for no poorer people can be found in the world. And I think that all put together, excepting their boats and their nets, they could not have had the value of two pence halfpenny. They have the head entirely shaved, with the exception of a lock of hair on the very top, which they allow to grow as long as a horse's tail, and which they fasten upon the head with some small copper needles. Their only dwelling is underneath their boats, which they overturn and then stretch themselves on the ground beneath them without any covering. After having planted a large cross in this place, Jacques Cartier obtained the chief's permission to take away with him two of his children, whom he was to bring back again on his next voyage. Then he set out again for France, and landed at Saint-Malo on the 5th of September, 1534. The following year, on the 19th of May, Cartier left Saint-Malo at the head of a fleet composed of three vessels, called the Grand, and the Petit Hermine, and the Emerillon, on board of which some gentlemen of high rank had taken passages, among whom may be named Charles de la Pomarée and Claude de Pontbriand, son of the Sieur de Montcavel, and cupbearer to the Dauphin. Very soon the squadron was dispersed by the storm, and could not be brought together again until it reached Newfoundland. After having landed at Bird Island in Whitesand Harbour, which is the Castle Bay, Cartier penetrated into the Bay of St. Lawrence. He discovered there the island of Natiscotec, which we call Anticosti, and entered a great river called Hochelega, which leads to Canada. On the banks of this river lies the country called Saugenay, whence comes the red copper to which the two savages whom he had taken on his first voyage gave the name of Cacadazé. But before entering the St. Lawrence, Cartier wished to explore the whole gulf, to see if no passage existed to the north. He afterwards returned to the Bay of the Seven Islands, went up the river, and soon reached the river of Saguenay, which falls into the St. Lawrence on its northern bank. A little further on, after passing by fourteen islands, he entered the Canadian territories, which no traveller before him had ever visited. The next day the Lord of Canada, called Donacona, with twelve boats and accompanied by sixteen men, approached the ships. When abreast of the smallest of our vessels, he began to make a palaver or preachment in their fashion, while moving his body and limbs in a marvellous manner which is a sign of joy and confidence. And when he arrived at the flagship, where there were two Indians who had been brought back from France, the said chief spoke to them, and they to him. And they began to relate to him what they had seen in France, and the good treatment which they had received, 
at which the said chief was very joyful, and begged the captain to give him his arms that he might kiss and embrace him, which is their mode of welcome in this country. The country of Stadacone, or Saint-Charles, is fertile and full of very fine trees of the same nature and kind as in France, such as oaks, elms, plum-trees, yews, cedars, vines, hawthorns, which bear fruit as large as damsons, and other trees. Beneath them grows hemp as good as that of France. Cartier succeeded afterwards in reaching with his boats and his galleon a place which is the Richelieu of the present day, next a great lake formed by the river St. Peter's Lake, and at last he arrived at Hotelega, or Montreal, which is 630 miles from the mouth of the St. Lawrence. In this place are ploughed lands and large and beautiful plains full of the corn of the country, which is like the millet of Brazil, as large or larger than peas, on which they live as we do on wheat. And among these plains is placed and seated the said town of Hotelega, near to and joining on to some high ground which is around the town, and which is well cultivated and quite small. From the top of it one can see very far. We named this mountain Mount Royal. The welcome given to Jacques Cartier could not have been more cordial. The chief, or Agohana, who was crippled in all his limbs, begged the captain to touch them as if he had asked him for a cure. Then the blind and those who were blind in one eye, the lame and the impotent, came and sat down near Jacques Cartier, that he might touch them. So thoroughly were they persuaded that he was a god descended to heal them. The said captain, seeing the faith and piety of this people, recited the gospel of St. John, namely, in Principio, making the sign of the cross over the poor sick people, praying God that he would give them the knowledge of our holy faith and grace to accept Christianity and baptism. Then the said captain took a book of ours and read aloud the passion of our Saviour, so well that all those present could hear it all the poor people being quite silent, looking up to heaven and using the same ceremonies as they saw us use. After making themselves acquainted with the country, which could be seen for ninety miles around from the top of Mount Royal, and having collected some information about the waterfalls and rapids of the St. Lawrence, Jacques Cartier returned towards Canada, where he did not delay to rejoin his ships. We owe to him the first information on tobacco for smoking, which does not seem to have been in use throughout the whole extent of the new world. They have a herb, he says, of which they collect great quantities during the summer for the winter. They esteem it highly, and the men alone use it in the following manner. They dry it in the sun, and carry it on their necks in a small skin of an animal, in the shape of a bag, with a horn of stone or of wood. Then constantly they make the said herb into a powder, and put it into one of the ends of the said horn. They then place a live coal upon it, and blow through the other end, and so fill their body with smoke that it issues from the mouth and nostrils, as if from the shaft of a chimney. We have tried said smoke, but after having put it into our mouths, it seemed as if there were a ground pepper in them, so hot is it. In the month of December, the inhabitants of Staracone were attacked by an infectious disease which proved to be the scurvy. This malady spread so rapidly in our vessels that by the middle of February 
out of our one hundred and ten men there were but ten in good health. Neither prayers, nor orison, nor vows to Our Lady of Rocomador brought any relief. Twenty-five Frenchmen perished up to the 18th of April, and there were not four amongst them who were not attacked by the malady. But at this time a savage chief informed Jacques Cartier that a decoction of the leaves and the sap of a certain tree, probably either the Canadian fir-tree or the barberry, was very salutary. As soon as two or three had experienced its beneficial effects, there was a crowding as if they would have killed each other to be the first to get the medicine. And one of the tallest and largest trees I ever saw was used in less than eight days, which had such an effect that if all the doctors of Louvain and Montpellier had been there with all the drugs of Alexandria, they had not done as much in a year as the said tree accomplished in eighty days. Some time after, Cartier, having noticed that Danacona were trying to excite sedition against the French, caused him to be seized as well as nine other savages, that he might take them to France, where they died. He set sail from the harbour of St. Croix on the 6th of May, descended the St. Lawrence, and after a voyage which was not marked by any incident, he landed at Saint-Malo on the 16th of July, 1536. Francis I, in consequence of the report of this voyage, which the Saint-Malo captain made to him, resolved to take effective possession of the country. After having appointed François de la Roque, Sieur de Roberval, viceroy of Canada, he caused five vessels to be fitted out, which, being laden with provisions and ammunition for two years, were to transport Roberval and a certain number of soldiers, artisans, and gentlemen to the new colony, which they were about to establish. The five vessels set sail on the 23rd of May, 1541. They met with such contrary winds that it took them three months to reach Newfoundland. Cartier did not arrive at the harbour of Saint-Croix until the 23rd of August. As soon as he had landed his provisions, he sent back two of his vessels to France, with letters for the king telling him what had been done, also that the Sieur de Roberval had not yet appeared, and that they did not know what had happened to him. Then he had works commenced to clear the land, to build a fort, and to lay the first foundations of the town of Quebec. He next set out for Hochelaga, taking with him Martin de Pampon and other gentlemen, and went to examine the three waterfalls of Saint-Marie, Lachine, and Saint-Louis. On his return to Saint-Croix, he found Roberval had just arrived. Cartier returned to Saint-Malo in the month of October, 1542, where, probably ten years later, he died. As to the new colony, Roberval, having perished in a second voyage, it vegetated, and was nothing more than a factory until 1608, the date of the foundation of Quebec by Monsieur de Champlain, of whom we shall relate the services and discoveries a little further on. We have just seen how Cartier, who had set out first to seek for the northwest passage, had been led to take possession of the country and to lay the foundations of the colony of Canada. In England, a similar movement had begun set on foot by the writings of Sir Humphrey Gilbert and of Richard Wills. They ended by carrying public opinion with them, and demonstrating that it was not more difficult to find this passage than it had been to discover the Strait of Magellan. One of the most ardent partisans of this search was a bold sailor called Martin Frobisher, who, after having many times applied to rich shipowners, 
at last found in Ambrose Dudley, Earl of Warwick, the favorite of Queen Elizabeth, a patron whose pecuniary help enabled him to build a pinnace and two poor barks, of from twenty to twenty-five tons burden. It was with means thus feeble that the intrepid navigator went to encounter the ice in localities which had never been visited since the time of Northmen. Setting out from Deptford on the 8th of June, 1576, he sighted the south of Greenland, which he took to be the Frisland of Zeno. Soon stopped by the ice, he was obliged to return to Labrador without being able to land there, and he entered Hudson Straits. After having coasted along Savage and Resolution Islands, he entered a strait which has received his name, but which is also called by some geographers Lunley's Inlet. He landed at Cumberland, took possession of the country in the name of Queen Elizabeth, and entered into some relations with the natives. The cold increased rapidly, and he was obliged to return to England. Frobisher only brought back some rather vague scientific and geographical details about the countries which he had visited. He received, however, a most flattering welcome when he showed a heavy black stone in which a little gold was found. At once all imaginations were on fire. Several lords, and the queen herself, contributed to the expense of a new armament, consisting of a vessel of two hundred tons, with a crew of one hundred men, and two smaller barks, which carried six months' provisions both for war and for nourishment. Frobisher had some experienced sailors, Fenson, York, George Best, and C. Hall, under his command. On the 31st of May, 1577, the expedition set sail, and soon sighted Greenland, of which the mountains were covered with snow, and the shores defended by a rampart of ice. The weather was bad. Exceedingly dense fogs, as thick as pea-soup, said the English sailors, islands of ice mile and a half in circumference, floating mountains which were sunk seventy or eighty fathoms in the sea. Such were the obstacles which prevented Frobisher from reaching, before the ninth of August, the strait which he had discovered during his previous campaign. The English took possession of the country, and pursued both upon land and sea some poor Esquimaux, who, wounded in this encounter, jumped in despair from the top of the rocks into the sea, says Forrester in his Voyages in the North, which would not have happened if they had shown themselves more submissive, or if we could have made them understand that we were not their enemies. A great quantity of stones, similar to that which had been brought to England, were soon discovered. They were of gold marcasite, and two hundred tons of this substance was soon collected. In their delight, the English sailors set up a memorial column on a peak to which they gave the name of Warwick Mount, and performed solemn acts of thanksgiving. Frobisher afterwards went ninety miles further on in the same strait, as far as a small island, which received the name of Smith's Island. There the English found two women, of whom they took one with her child, but left the other on account of her extreme ugliness. Suspecting, so much did superstition and ignorance flourish at this time, that this woman had cloven feet, they made her take the coverings off her feet, to satisfy themselves that they really were made like their own. Frobisher, now perceiving that the cold was increasing, and wishing to place the treasures which he thought he had collected, in a place of safety, resolved to give up for the present any farther search for the northwest passage. He then set sail for England. 
where he arrived at the end of September, after weathering a storm which dispersed his fleet. The man, woman, and child who had been carried off were presented to the queen. It is said with regard to them that the man, seeing at Bristol Frobisher's trumpeter on horseback, wished to imitate him, and mounted with his face turned towards the tail of the animal. These savages were the objects of much curiosity, and obtained permission from the queen to shoot all kinds of birds, even swans, on the Thames, a thing which was forbidden to everyone else under the most severe penalties. They did not long survive, and died before the child was fifteen months old. People were not slow in discovering that the stones brought back by Frobisher really contained gold. The nation, but above all the higher classes, were immediately seized with a fever bordering on delirium. They had found a Peru, an El Dorado. Queen Elizabeth, in spite of her practical good sense, yielded to the current. She resolved to build a fort in the newly discovered country to which she gave the name of Meta Incognita, Unknown Boundary and to leave there with one hundred men as garrison, under the command of Captains Fenton, Best, and Philpot, three vessels which should take in a cargo of the auriferous stones. These one hundred men were carefully chosen. There were bakers, carpenters, masons, gold refiners, and others belonging to all the various handicrafts. The fleet was composed of fifteen vessels, which set sail from Harwich on the 31st of May, 1578. Twenty days later, the western coast of Frisland were discovered. Whales played around the vessels in innumerable troops. It is related even that one of the vessels, propelled by a favorable wind, struck against a whale with such force that the violence of the shock stopped the ship at once, and that the whale, after uttering a loud cry, made a spring out of the water, and then was suddenly swallowed up. Two days later the fleet met with a dead whale, which they thought must be the one struck by the salamander. When Frobisher came to the entrance of the strait, which has received his name, he found it blocked up with floating ice. The bark Dennis, one hundred tons, says the old account of George Best, received such a shock from an iceberg that she sank in sight of the whole fleet. Following upon this catastrophe, a sudden and horrible tempest arose from the southeast. The vessels were surrounded on all sides by the ice. They left much of it, between which they could pass behind them, and found still more before them, through which it was impossible for them to penetrate. Certain ships, either having found a place less blocked with ice, or one where it was possible to proceed, furled sails and drifted. Of the others, several stopped and cast their anchors upon a great island of ice. The latter were so rapidly enclosed by an infinite number of islets of ice, and fragments of icebergs, that the English were obliged to resign themselves and their ships to the mercy of the ice, and to protect the ships with cables, cushions, mats, boards, and all kinds of articles, which were suspended to the sides, in order to defend them from the fearful shocks and blows of the ice. Frobisher himself was thrown out of his course. Finding the impossibility of rallying his squadron, he sailed along the west coast of Greenland, as far as the strait which was soon to be called Davis's Strait, and penetrated as far as the Countess of Warwick Bay. When he had repaired his vessels with the wood which was to have been used in the building of a dwelling, he loaded the ships with five hundred tons of stones, similar to those which had already been brought home. 
judging the season to be then too far advanced and considering also that the provisions had been either consumed or lost in the dennis that the wood for building had been used for repairing the vessels and having lost forty men he set out on his return to england on the thirty first of august tempests and storms accompanied him to the shores of his own country as to the results of his expedition there were almost none as to discoveries and the stones which he had put on board in the midst of so many dangers were valueless this was the last arctic voyage in which frobisher took part in fifteen eighty five we meet with him again as vice-admiral under drake in fifteen eighty eight he distinguished himself against the invincible armada in fifteen ninety he was with sir walter raleigh's fleet on the coast of spain finally in a descent on the coast of france he was so seriously wounded that he had only time to bring back his squadron to portsmouth before he died if frobisher's voyages had only gain for their motive we must put this down not to the navigator himself but to the passions of the period and it is not the less true that in difficult circumstances and with means the insufficiency of which make us smile he gave proof of courage talent and perseverance to frobisher is due in one word the glory of having shown the route to his countrymen and of having made the first discoveries in the localities where the english name was destined to render itself illustrious end of second part chapter 3 part 2a recording by stephen reynolds durham connecticut